Well, if you have a Bible with you, whether it's uh, on your phone or with you, the paper version, I invite you to take it and turn to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, where we're going to be, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, we're continuing our series through First uh, and Second Thessalonians, uh, titled "Living, Waiting, Living, Waiting, and Enduring for Jesus." And uh, perhaps, you know, there are a few things that we'll face in this life that make it more difficult to live, to wait, and to endure for the Lord's return than the topic of what God brings us to this morning. First Thessalonians. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 8. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 8. Finally, and that word finally just means now on to the next thing. Finally then, brothers, or brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus... That as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. If you are unfamiliar with, or if you've never been to a Christian camp, uh, I was attending a senior high camp uh, as a high school student, and it was Thursday night, and if you're not, again, if you're not familiar with how things go, there's normally a night at a high school camp when the speaker takes the night to talk about living a sexually pure life. And on this occasion, some 15 years ago, uh, this, uh, this speaker would, would preach the sermon on living a pure life, and, and, and he, after he got done preaching, he, 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 he encouraged and challenged everybody who wanted to commit to purity for their whole life to, to go out and walk, walk to the back, grab their counselor, and go and pray with them and commit to the Lord that you're going to live a life of purity. Now, who's going to say no to that invitation at a senior high camp. You don't want to be the only person sitting uh, while everybody else is going back. So sure enough, after he gave the invitation, most everybody and most everybody in my youth group got up and went to the back to, quote-unquote, commit themselves to a life of purity. And this happens all over the place, Christian camps across the U.S. There's always a call for the high school student to resolve to live a life of purity, and that's not bad in and of itself. But yet we still have this pandemic of its own when it comes to immorality in our country. And does anybody want to guess how well our group did at maintaining its quote-unquote purity? We didn't do very well. Most high school students don't. When it comes to purity, when it comes to abstaining from sexual immorality, it's not about walking back. It's not about walking forward to the altar. It's about walking with God. It's about knowing, loving, and serving, and submitting to the Lord Jesus. 
As we talk about this sin, it's, I, I, I come to this knowing that this sin and sexual sin is no respecter of gender. It's no respecter of age. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter how much theology you know. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor, a farmer, a first responder, a factory worker, a business owner, a student, or you're unemployed. It doesn't matter if you're married or single. This is something we all have to confront. And I'd like us all to confront this thing together this morning. Now, chapter 4 begins really kind of the second part of the book. At the end of chapter 3, we end the first part. And Paul is going to start to address a number of different issues that he needed to address in this church and the first one being, uh, before he gets into other things, the first topic is that of their sanctification and their purity. But before we get into the, the points for the message, I kind of want to give you a few observations on this passage before we get in. Okay, there's several observations I want to make just right off the get-go here. And first, I want, you to, I want you to know that Paul is constantly referring to the Lord Jesus and to God as he addresses this subject. So, verse 1, he says, we urge you in the Lord Jesus, how you, you receive from us, how you ought to walk and please God. Uh, verse 2, you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Verse 3, this is the will of God. And on and on it goes. Verse 5, this is how people who don't know God. Verse 7, God hasn't called us to this. Verse 8, if, if you disregard this command, you're not disregarding man, but God. And so God, God is the final authority on this subject, when it comes to purity, God gets the final say. He is the authority. And so Paul here isn't just giving them helpful suggestions that they may or may not want to take and implement into their lives. He's saying, I'm coming to you with divinely inspired commands and instructions. A second observation is that Paul understands the culture in which they live. So you might be tempted this morning to say, well, you know, the culture we live in today, everything is just so accessible. It's all around us. We're constantly, you know, we can, we can access whatever immorality we want to on our phones, on our computers, things that are going on TV and TV shows, the messages we're constantly getting, the clothes that are available to buy. Everything is just pointing towards, how do we, how do we even do this? But I want you to notice that in verse 4, Paul says, he says, uh, he says, control your body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of the lust, uh, like the Gentiles who do not know God. The city of Thessalonica was a major Roman province and therefore operated under the same sort of philosophies and worldview as Rome. And when it came to purity, well, there wasn't really much going on in that culture. The philosophy was basically here in the time that this, when Paul was writing this letter, the philosophy was basically, if you want it, and as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, go get it. The message was, submit your body to your burning passions. If you have burning passions, then, then take your body and, and give in to them. In Rome, as much as there are a lot of ways provided for us in our culture today to fulfill and to satisfy these burning passions, Rome provided a myriad of ways to fulfill sensual desires. And as Gene Green one commentator said, he said, the message of sexual purity would have been a hard sell in Thessalonica, just like it is in our culture today. Third, I want to point out to you before we get in that Paul is addressing a topic that he already addressed. Did you notice that? He says, you, that just as you receive from us, you've already received this. 
He says, verse 2, you know what instructions we gave you. So Paul is addressing a topic that he already addressed to them in person. Which means that some in the church, perhaps many in the church, ignored these instructions. That this was a real thing going on in the church. But notice he's not just addressing the same topic, but he's also addressing it the same way. He says, you know what instructions we gave you in the Lord Jesus. This is God's will. He just go, he, he's not changing it. And you could say, well, man, why didn't God give these people a break? Why didn't God relax his standard a little bit? I mean, these people were just saved a matter of months ago. They were just saved out of this sort of culture. I mean, surely God could have relaxed a little bit here. But the answer really comes from verse 3 when we see the word sanctification. That's a big word. And it's a word that refers to our hearts becoming more and more like God's heart. And the reason why Paul doesn't change his message and the reason why God doesn't change his standards is because sanctification is not God adjusting himself to our desires. Sanctification is not God adjusting himself to the culture. Sanctification is us adjusting ourselves to God. And fourth and finally, before we get into the, the balance of our time, into the actual message here, I, wanna, I want you to notice that as much as this passage is about the do's and don'ts of sexual purity, it also tells us that we can live a life that pleases God in this way. I don't know the story of everyone in here, but I know in a crowd this size, it is almost certain that there are those of you who are right now caught in some form of sexual sin. There are some in here who have, unconfessed, have an unconfessed affair hanging over their life. There are some in here who are repeatedly being involved in infidelity to their spouse. There are some in here who are considering acting out on an untethered burning passion that they've had for some time. And there are those of us in here who have a past of sin that brings us shame and regret. But I want, wherever you are in that, I want you to know that this is not just an ought-to passage. This is a can-do passage. And in order to fulfill God's standards, you will need the only one who can grant forgiveness, cleansing, and restoration, Jesus Christ. Settle this in your minds before we get into the rest of the message. Read it on the screen. Without Jesus in the picture, sin may get curbed, but it won't get cured. Satan will gladly give you freedom from an addiction. As long as it means you're not any closer to Jesus. As long as Jesus stays out of the picture. Without Jesus in the picture, your sin and this sin, whatever sin you have, may get curbed, but it won't be cured. And Jesus wants to help you. If you're discouraged or ashamed, you're filled with regret, you think that there's just no way God is going to help you, and we'll touch on this more, but just God isn't stiff-arming you like some gross plague. You open your dark places to Christ, and he'll come in with forgiving, forgiveness, and forgiveness cleansing and restoring grace 
Now, if your goal this morning is to listen to this message, which is the temptation of everybody, myself included, the, the temptation is just to, to, whenever we talk about any sin, wherever we're confronted with anything, the temptation is to excuse our sin, to get cute with it and say, well, this is just something I've got to, you know, this is just something that's part of my life. Or we try to overpower it on our own. You will never experience true freedom. If this morning your plan is to excuse your sin, get cute with it, or try to overpower it on your own, you'll never experience true freedom. And so as we get into the passage here, it was Martin Luther who said of this very passage, he says, this lesson is of easy interpretation. What he's saying there is this, you know, it's not too hard to understand. It's pretty straightforward what God is saying here. Paul is admonishing them to increase in holiness and conformity to the image of Jesus Christ, specifically in the area of moral purity. And so I want to look at, there are four adjustments, four adjustments to make in order to walk in holiness. Four adjustments to make in order to walk in holiness. Number one, allow God to govern your decisions. Allow God to govern your decisions. Now it's in verses 1 to 3. We already read this, but notice, so Paul talks to them, he's coming to them, he calls them brothers. Or really the idea there is not just referring to the men, he's talking, the the word brothers was used for the whole community of the church. So really it'd be like us saying brothers and sisters. So Paul is writing this as a brother in Christ, not as a judge or with some sense of superiority. He's coming to them saying, hey, I'm in the community of Christ with you. And he uses the word urge because this is an urgent matter. And so he says, finally, brothers, we ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus. He's, he's, he, he knows that when it comes to our thoughts, when it comes to our actions, when it comes to our desires, that affects how we live the Christian life. And so Paul is using this word urge because he's trying to get them to go on a certain path. He's trying to, he's trying to point them in the right direction to get them to go where God wants them to go. He's trying to get them to, to make it their aim. Remember that, uh, that verse in 2 Corinthians 5, 9 where Paul says, whether at home or we're away, we make it our aim to please him. That's what Paul is trying to do here. He's trying to say, this, is, this is, should be your aim, to please God. Is that your aim? I mean, perhaps this is an adjustment you need to make just right away, allowing God to govern your decisions. That if you were to be honest, you would say, listen, my aim is not to please God, but to please myself. And if you do say, well, yes, my aim is to please God, then the other question is, do you follow his instructions? Like verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you. And this, this has like a military theme to it, the word instructions. It's like, the, it's like a command coming down from a commanding officer. And so again, Paul is stressing, this is from the Lord Jesus. Paul was coming to them on the authority of the Lord Jesus. And Paul uses, uh, in verse 3, where he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain. That word abstain is probably the strongest word he could use. Okay, because he's not talking about moderation. He's not saying, hey, just back off the sexual immorality a little bit. He's not saying, hey, just make sure you only let a little bit. Make sure it's only a, a little look. Make sure it's just only a little bit. He's saying, no, full on abstain from it. This is the idea of Ephesians 5, verse 3. I like how the NIV puts it uh, in Ephesians 5, verse 3. He says, but among you, notice he says, there must not even be a hint, not even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because those two are very closely linked together. He says, because these are improper for God's holy people, allowing God to govern our decisions. 
And again, like we said in the introduction, Paul is confronting a culture here. And listen, the culture is going to tell you that you should value, and it's going to tell you what you should value, it's going to tell you what you should pursue, it's going to tell you what you should want, it's going to tell you what to do, what to desire. In this world, our culture today, America 2021, coming up 2022, is going to give you a myriad of ways to fulfill your immoral desires and my immoral desires. They're going to do it through advertisements and movies and billboards and stores and magazines and on and on and on and on. And here's the problem. And here's why I know this is an issue for everybody. One is because Jesus says it is. He says if anybody even lusts after someone, they've committed adultery. So Jesus says we're all sexually broken. But here's the other thing. Our natural desires, our flesh has a natural eagerness to take up the culture on its offers. Our flesh has a natural eagerness to take up the culture on what it offers. But the Christian must allow God always to govern our decisions, our values, our desires, our actions, our pursuits. Not the culture, not our sinful flesh. Because we can't please God while being governed by the sin of a culture. Really what Paul is saying, what is really what Paul is urging them to do, and we'll get this in verse 7, but remember he says, for God, uh, he says, uh, therefore, verse 8, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God. He's asking them to flip this around. He's saying, I want you to disregard man when it comes to this. I want you to disregard the culture. He's asking them to disregard the culture, not God. Christians must avoid sexual sin. And if you want to know what sexual sin is, uh, this is a definition from a mentor of mine, Pat Nemmer's. Where he says, sexual activity of any kind, and I included, including thoughts, sexual activity of any kind outside the bonds of marriage between one biological male and one biological female is sin. Sexual activity of any kind outside the bonds of marriage between one biological male and one biological female is sin. Whether it's the activity of your mind or the activity of your hands, God is clear on this. And the question is, who governs your decisions when it comes to this? Who governs what you type in the search bar? Who governs how you interact with a coworker or a classmate at school? Who governs what movies or TV shows you watch? Who governs what gets your eyes gaze? Who governs what you fantasize about? Social norms today, social norms today, they permit and even celebrate and encourage what God prohibits. The question is, are you taking the culture's offer? Are you taking what it's offering you? Are you following today's cultural approach to sexuality and thought, desire, motive, and action? Or are you governed by God? Now, if you're in here and you're thinking, man, God is, God is some sort of restriction-fueled killjoy. And if that's your thought of God, then you're never, you're never going to get here. Because you have to understand that God is offering you freedom and joy. He's not trying to be a killjoy. He's trying to give you the most joy. God knows the danger of being governed by the culture. God knows the danger of our own natural inclinations. So he gives us boundaries and he gives us warnings so that we can know the path to life and to joy and to freedom. 
And so whether you have an uncontrolled thought life or you are actively involved in sinful activity right now, the question is, are you willing to make this adjustment and let God govern your thoughts, your decisions, your actions? There's a second adjustment we need to make. Verses 4 and 5. And that is practice self-control. Notice what he says here. He says, says, each of you know how to control his own body. Your translation may say vessel. Control your own vessel. Control your own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Practice self-control. Our culture says, let your body control you. And that's what your sinful flesh wants. Our culture normalizes what God hates. It says we should let our sinful flesh call the shots in our lives. And guess what? Your sinful flesh and my sinful flesh, it wants to call the shots in our lives. So we need to have self-control. The message we hear all around us, from social media to advertisements to movies and billboards, it's, it's, the message is if you deci- desire something, then it must be good. If your body is burning for something... It must be good. It must be what your body needs, so go get it. And we often fall for this lie, but our bodies are not meant to be for us. Romans 12 says we need to offer them as a living sacrifice, but they're to be controlled in holiness. This is Romans 6, verse 13, where Paul says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. That's our call. We are to learn how to set apart our lives, even our bodies, for the service of God. And we honor and esteem and dignify the body that God has given to us, not by abandoning it to lustful passions, but by rendering it in service to God. Now let's talk about that phrase there. Your translation may say a couple different things, but uh, verse 5, not in the passion of lust. This refers to a very strong craving. And Paul is telling them, don't surrender. Don't surrender these strong cravings. Don't be carried away by your passionate lust. And really the idea is these are sort of the, the burning passions that arise from sexual desires. Paul says elsewhere, and he writes to the Corinthians, we have to take every thought captive to obey Christ. We must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. Here's what Paul told the young pastor Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21 and 22. He says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, notice this, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions. Paul knew Timothy had him. He just says, listen, you're going to have them. That's 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 natural thing that's going to be there. He says, what you have to do is not give in to them, but self-control and flee, run away, pursue righteousness. Faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. Paul Tripp said, thinking your body belongs to you starts you down the road to all kinds of sexual dysfunction and sin. So Paul is urging them to grab on to this self-control. And he says, not like the Gentiles who do not know God. This is Paul's way of referring to non-Christians. The Holy Spirit, Spirit bears the fruit 
of self-control in our lives. And in order to have self-control, in order to be able to control our body, we have to control our mind. We need spirit-empowered self-control. And many caught in sexual sin or addiction or fantasizing, they don't practice self-control. But many who are caught and they just can't seem to get out of the rut and it's just, it just seems like to be there, they're, they're not practicing self-control, but they're constantly praying for God to take it away, expecting God to kind of zap them with holiness. And I like the story, uh, an author and, and uh, pastor, uh, Randy Alcorn, he tells the story in his book, The Purity Principle, of a Christian man who was raised in the church, strong Christian family, uh, a young guy who got married uh, to a, a strong Christian lady. And he stormed into his office one day and he, and he said, I'm mad at God. And Alcorn looked at him and says, well, why are you mad at God? To which this, this man replied, and this is a true story, this man sitting across from him said, he said, I'm mad at God because last week I committed adultery. And Alcorn sat there, and after a a long pause, Alcorn said to this guy, he said, well, I could see why God would be mad at you, but why would you be mad at God? And he explained, this young man did, that he had felt a strong mutual attraction with a woman at his office for several months, and he prayed earnestly for God to keep him from immorality. Alcorn says, did you ask your wife to pray for you? Did you stay away from the woman? Young man replied, well, no. We went out for lunch almost every day. To which Randy Alcorn took a book, and he didn't have a music stand, but he put it on his desk, and he began pushing the book slowly off the desk, and he prayed out loud, God, do not let this book fall from my desk. I pray, Lord, please keep the book from falling. All the while while pushing the book, pushing the book, pushing the book, all the while praying, God, don't let this book fall. And he looked at that young man and he said, I'm mad at God too. I prayed for God to keep that book from falling and he didn't do it and he disappointed me. See, self-control, that's an adjustment you need to make. And it's an adjustment because it doesn't come naturally, which is why we need the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. The third adjustment. Verse 6, care for others, don't consume them. Which is really at one of the roots of sexual sin. It turns people into a thing to consume, not a person to be cared for. So we never say that God did not create the body of another person for you to consume, whether mentally or physically. God did not create the body of another person for you to consume them to fulfill your own sensual desires. Even in marriage, even in marriage, the body of your spouse wasn't created to fulfill your lusts. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 uh, verses 2 through 6 makes it very clear that nothing about even our sexuality in marriage is about taking for ourselves and using the body of another person to fulfill our own lusts and our own desires. It's about giving and serving and loving. And joy and intimacy within a covenanted marriage comes by serving, not by taking. 
And our flesh falls for the lie that because we have these God-given desires, and God did give us those desires, and it is a good thing, but we take those things and we pervert them. And we say, well then, therefore, if I have these desires, then everybody's free game. And look what he says in verse 6. He says, Paul tells the Thessalonians, he says, no one transgress and wrong his brother. And so he's talking about within the church, but certainly by extension, anybody, even those outside the church, unbelievers. He said, don't transgress and wrong anybody in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. That word transgress means to exceed the proper limits. God has put limits on this stuff, and to transgress it means to go beyond those. The word wrong really carries the idea to defraud. It means to selfishly and greedily take for yourself and for your own personal pleasure and for your own personal gain. It's using others for my personal benefit. And it's a sin to consume others for your own pleasure. And listen, mutual and consensual adultery or any other sort of sexual sin doesn't make it any less selfish. Doesn't make this any less applicable. Because if you really cared for someone, you wouldn't lead them into this sort of sin and impurity. Do you notice what it says here? Almost want to skip over it, don't we? He says, you church don't do this because, what's the reason he gave? The Lord is an avenger. That word avenger literally means punisher. The Lord is the one who will punish in all these things. We told you this. We solemnly warned you that this, this will bring God's punishment on you. Paul says we have solemnly warned you about this. That while God bears with us in our sin, he wants us to see the reality of our sin so that we might turn to him. And so God is going... God is going to punish Christians. You might be in here, wait, God is going to punish Christians? Yes. And we even know from Scripture that God will punish this more rigorously in a Christian's life than in non-Christians. That's 1 Corinthians 11.30. Remember where, where Paul said they were going to the Lord's Supper and he says, and they had all this sexual immorality in the church. And Paul says, listen, this is the reason why some of you are sick, some of you are dying. It's because you're letting this sin hang around. And God is judging you now, so to speak, so you won't be judged in eternity. God is trying to help you realize the gravity of this sin now, so you don't just go through life thinking your sin's no big deal. Martin Luther comments on this passage. He says that while it is true that if sins of immorality are not renounced, God will punish, he says, though, yet punishment in such cases is, for the most part, temporal. What he's saying there is like, he's not saying that Christians are going to lose their salvation and all of a sudden they're going to they're be, be consumed by God's wrath and hell for all eternity. But he is saying that God will punish these sins. You can't lose your salvation, even if you're involved in sexual sin, but God is the one who dishes out punishment on those who transgress this command. God brings punishment to try to spare us from the destruction this causes. And God brings punishment because he takes the side of those being victimized by you, by me, and the sin. And it's not always that the other party is always guiltless or that there's, there's, there's not another party involved in these things, but God takes the side of those being consumed. 
Living in untethered, passionate lust victimizes other people by making them an object, object of sexual pleasure. And that's not why God created people. And that's not why God created you. It's not why God created you. I think every woman young in high school needs to know this. That God did not create you to please somebody else with your body. That if someone's vying for your attention and tell you they'll give you acceptance, that's a lie from hell itself. You don't need to dress a certain way. You don't need to act a certain way. You don't need to do certain things to win any guy's attention or be accepted. That's not why God created our bodies. Perhaps this is an adjustment you need to make. Stop consuming and start caring. And number four, the fourth adjustment from this passage is to rely on God's grace and the Holy Spirit. So Paul brings in God's calling here. He says, verse 7 and 8, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. Notice the last phrase on the subject. Who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul calls the attention of the readers to their calling. To the call of God on their life. God did the choosing. He says that back in chapter 1, verse 4. God did the calling. God did the saving. God did it all. And guess what? God knew every single sin that they would commit after they were Christians. But the conclusion isn't, well, if God knew I was going to be doing this, or if God knew I was really going to be given to sexual temptation, well, therefore, I guess, I mean, God knew, right? So it doesn't really matter. But that's not the conclusion here. The conclusion is not that God approves of sin. Paul is saying that God didn't call them with the intention that they would continue in sexual immorality. God called them with the intention that they would walk in holiness. God called us and transferred us to the kingdom of his son so that we would live our lives in the sphere of our union with Christ. Peter picks up on this in 1 Peter chapter 1 where he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile, knowing, here even Peter's bringing us back to God's grace and the Holy Spirit, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. So all this is rooted in God's grace God started a work of transformation. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're a Christian, God started a work of transformation in you. Don't settle for the pull of the old nature. Rely on God's grace and the Holy Spirit to help you walk in newness of life. God gave you his Holy Spirit. And therefore, since, like the last phrase says, he gives you his Holy Spirit, because God gave us his Holy Spirit, we can't excuse our sin. We can't go through life saying, well, if my husband would just do this, or if my wife would only do that, or if only I was married and I wasn't single anymore, if only more people would show me acceptance or appreciation, if only this or only that. We can't excuse it. He has given us his Holy Spirit, which means we've been given something far more satisfying than any sexual fantasy or excursion could ever give us. 
and it means that we've been given something far more powerful than our own grit and willpower. And so the obligation to live a holy life, abstaining from sexual immorality, comes from God. But it's also God who gives us the Holy Spirit, the power, the grace to fulfill his commands. And Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us even if we fail. There's no such thing as a Christian life free from sexual temptations. But there is such a thing as a life of purity, of saying no to those temptations. I'm reminded of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where he's telling the Corinthians, he says, the unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God. The sexually immoral won't, won't do it. The idolaters won't. The adulterers won't. Men who practice homosexuality won't, thieves won't, greedy won't, drunkards won't. But he ends that that whole list of things with saying, as such were some of you. This was in the past. You, some of you were like this. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he might be saying, well, he's talking about their pre-conversion life. Yeah, he is, but he's also writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and and, and, and right as these Christians are given permission to all sorts of immorality in the church and so what he's saying is there is a hope there is a future there is glory there's joy there's freedom for you even if you're a christian and you're caught in sin or you've you've messed up big time you've given into the desires there is hope for you he says because you were sanctified you were justified in the name of the lord jesus christ by the spirit of god and as we Start to bring this to a close. I want to read you a small portion, a really small portion of Ray, Ray Ortland. He recently wrote a book and released it. It's called The Death of Porn, Men of Integrity Building a World of Nobility. Now, but this applies generally to the whole subject that we've talked about today. So if you're a Christian, listen up. Ray Ortland writes in his book, he says, Maybe you look at your mess and think, If God has any self-respect at all, he must despise me. He'd be wrong not to despise me. But that despairing thought keeps you hanging back from God. Self-punishment doesn't make you more forgivable. It blocks your way to forgiveness. He is inviting you to come out of hiding and stand tall again. He's not at war with you. Why? Because you aren't really all that bad? No. Because in one blinding moment of painful atonement on the cross, the dark energy of your evil forever lost its bid for supremacy. Do you really think, after the cross, your shame drives God away? Nope. Your shame is precisely where he can recreate you the most gloriously. Do you think that you're disgusting to him? Wrong again. The worst things about you are where he loves you the most tenderly. God welcomes high-maintenance men and women who keep coming back to him for more mercy and more mercy and more mercy multiple times every day. He isn't tired, and he isn't tired of you. He proved his commitment long ago at the cross. End quote. These are the adjustments we need to make. And for those of you this morning who feel discouraged and hopeless, you're living in self-punishment, you need to look to the cross and find hope. 
For those of you who are playing light with sin, and perhaps you are engaged in, in adultery or immorality as we speak, you need to look to the cross, confess, repent, lest the Lord punish you and find the hope and the freedom and the mercy that comes at the cross. And for those of you who listen to this and think, man, well, I'm not a Christian, but in order to get to heaven, I've got to get my, my sexual life together. I've got to make sure I'm following all these rules. The answer is no, you don't. Forgiveness and cleansing and restoration are found in placing your faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what he's inviting you to do, to come and to be saved, to have all your sins forgiven. He died on the cross to bear the eternal punishment for your sins. Yes, even the ones that you think are so bad you could never be forgiven. He rose again from the dead to give you hope. And so as we close this out, and like the song we're about to sing, may we never forget that the Lord is our salvation. Let's pray. Father, we all need to make adjustments. We all face these temptations. Lord, I pray that today might be the beginning of confession, repentance, and restoration for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.